0: we now project Hillary Clinton will get 3 of the 4 electoral votes in Maine Maine distributes its electoral votes uh, according to the congressional the districts Donald Trump will get 1
1: as hard as this is to believe with slim majorities for democrats in the Senate if you and count in the, the House, legal votes it is possible i House easily democrats win could if you count the illegal votes marionette they can weeks. try to
0: steal the election from this us. is no longer an election this is like alice in wonderland
1: First of all, welcome again to the Committee on House Administration's podcast to actually talk about election integrity. We want Americans, all Americans, to have faith in our elections. And the reason we have this podcast is to get the experts in here to talk about what matters most to make sure that our elections are fair. We've got today a highlight on the Federal Election Commission. Many people in this country don't know that the Committee on House Administration, the smallest full committee in Congress, has oversight responsibility of the Federal Election Commission. Uh, the Federal Election Commission can make or break people in my business uh, when it comes to running for office. They are the ones that regulate what, how we spend our money that we can put forth in our own campaigns. So I'm honored to have today three guests. We've got the chair of the FEC, Alan Dickerson here, and Alan recently became the chair of the commission. And you know, I I met with you briefly uh, last summer when we had all three Republican uh, all three Republican commissioners in person. So um, thank you for being here today. We're also joined by Lee Goodman. Lee is a former FEC commissioner uh, who left the commission in February of 2018, and Lee's been great to help us on house administration, educate congressional staff about what the FEC does, because uh, he was a panelist for our election university. And our third guest is somebody I used to watch when I was more on the campaign side for a member of Congress, John Shimkus. And I, I, would, I, I would you know just sit with bated breath to wonder what Brad Smith was going to decide on the FEC and how it might affect my job as a campaign manager for my current member of Congress. Uh, Brad left the commission back in April of 2005, and he currently leads the Institute for Free Speech. And I got to tell you, Brad, I want to thank the Institute and everyone there, including you, because you were very helpful as we waged that fight against HR1 here in Congress, the last two Congresses. So thank you all for being here today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, I'd like to begin today by talking about the Federal Election Commission's structure and operations. Uh, In response to alleged financial abuses during the 1972 presidential campaigns and the Watergate scandal, Congress in 1974 amended the Federal Election Campaign Act, commonly known as the FECA, to establish a new independent federal regulatory agency called the Federal Election Commission. And your job at the FEC is to enforce federal campaign finance laws and, quote, promote confidence and participation in the democratic process. The FEC opens its doors in 1975. And was that the first year Ellen Weintraub was named a commissioner?
2: I think it was a yeah. couple intervening years. Couple, okay, okay.
1: She's still there, right? <laughs> she is. Okay, all right. Give her my best. Uh, Probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the FEC has operated since then under a bipartisan six-member commission. This agency impacts every member of Congress, as I mentioned, as it has jurisdiction over the financing of our campaigns. And as I said before, really excited to be joined by the three, three former, two former commissioners and the current chair of the FEC. And I'm really honored that we can get to some questions here because I think it's important for our listeners to understand what is the FEC purpose you know the first amendment free speech they're pretty important and frankly I think they represent the core of the American experiment so it makes it all more important that an agency meant to regulate speech like the FEC does so with the lightest touch possible and that congress stays within its constitutional bounds so first I'm going to start with the old guy here and I, that's <laughs> That's not you, Mr. Chair. We're going back to, to, to Mr. Smith. Uh, Brad, how do you see the tension between the First Amendment and campaign finance regulation playing out in the short and long term?
3: Sure. Well, I, I appreciate the, uh, the introduction. That's the old guy.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you could, yeah, I guess you could do a lot worse than be the grand old man. So <laughs> He's uh, experienced. Well- That's right. That's right.
3: So first, it is important to note that there is a tension. I mean, some some people miss that, and, and, you know, it's it's not obvious, I I think, when you just think about it, that spending money on campaigns is speech. But if you do think about it a bit more, limiting spending limits uh, the amount of speech. Uh, Just the same as if we were to say, uh, we're going to limit the amount that you can spend on, on building churches or hiring pastors or buying hymnals or engaging in missionary work, we'd all realize that that was a violation right, to, to practice one's religion. And it's the same with speech. So that tension is, is definitely there. In the short term, I think we're going to continue to see campaign finance used as a tool to try to silence unfavorable views. You know, nowadays, much of the action has shifted to uh, other areas like like big tech, and then the more focused just on election integrity, per se. But we should remember that that all of this start. I mean, the starting point or the liberal effort to sort of exclude conservative views from the public square was campaign finance uh, back in the 60s and, and 70s. And uh, I think in the short term that will continue. Uh, in H.R. 1, for example, uh, it was it, a lot of people, you know, there's, there was so much in the bill that a lot of people missed that Almost a third of that bill is just about provisions that would limit and regulate how people fund their campaigns and what they can say and do in their campaigns.
1: Uh, great, great observations. We appreciate your comments here. Uh, let me go to to Lee Goodman. Lee, uh, the Supreme Court's had a lot to say about Congress's previous attempts to restrict the exercise of the First Amendment. Uh, where we, where have we landed on Congress's interest in this space?
0: Well, um, in in the nineteen seventies, there was a broad set of uh, congressional purposes asserted to justify this this scheme of uh, limits on expenditures and contributions to campaigns. And uh, they, they ranged, you know, from um, preventing the corruption of politicians to broad concerns um, such as equalizing speech uh, in democracy, that it was somehow unfair uh, that uh, wealthy interests got to uh, have more speech than uh, poor interest. <clears throat> and the court took those interests up in Buckley v. Valeo in 1976. And where it landed was that there was really only one uh, important or compelling interest to justify the restriction of, of the speech that, that money uh, is necessary uh, to buy uh, in the democratic process. And that is the prevention of corruption of our politicians. It's like an anti-bribery law, but that it differs from the bribery statutes because it one is prophylactic or preventative. In other words, it tries to prevent the corrupt exchange of money for official government action before it happens. And the, the other distinction between this area of law and the bribery laws is that this limits campaign contributions. Uh, not what a bribe typically targets, which is money in the pocket of a politician. So, so uh, ever since Buckley, we've had this central governmental interest recognized, which is the prevention of corruption, not equalization of speech, not using the campaign finance laws to wage the, you know, the ideological war of the last hundred years between capitalists and labor or capitalists and socialists. Um, it's not a good government law. You know, you'll you often hear there's too much money in politics, which is like saying there's just too much speech in politics. Um, it's not a consumer protection statute. Uh, and it's not even transparency, meaning the reporting of contributions and expenditures for the
1: sake of transparency. Mm-hmm. And so uh,
0: it is solely to prevent the corruption,
1: well, that's great to know, and it's interesting. You know, we talk about uh, campaign contribution limits. At the same time, Democrats here in Washington and H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 have tried to institute a solution that they think taxpayers want, and that is to put public money into our own congressional campaigns. Uh, that, that, to me, is just an amazing solution that just is beget with future problems that I don't think the FEC could even regulate. But that's the solution that has come from Democrats, and you know, leads me into my next question, Chair Dickerson. We hear a lot about money and speech. Um, how are the two related?
2: Well, uh, intimately. Uh, the, so l- let me start by, by thanking you for having me here, uh, Congressman. Uh, it's uh, you know, all, all of us in government, I think, are aware that we stand on the shoulders of giants. But uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't have to actually do panels with Henry Clay, so it's <laughs> it's fun to be here with two of my two of my predecessors and friends. Um, to that uh, to that question, though, I mean, that this is this is the central insight of of the Buckley versus Valeo court. Um, you know, you you can speak all day long. You can go get a soapbox and stand on a corner and inveigh against uh, the Federal Election Campaign Act if you wish, but. You now, what we've all been concerned about since day one is effective speech. I don't think there's any question that people on soapboxes uh, seldom swing political elections, seldom swing major questions of policy. And so what the court observed in Buckley was you know, if you want to do this effectively in a mass, mass society, you're going to have to pay for ads. You're going to have to pay for printing. You're going to have to have office space. You're going to have to hire experts. Um, you're going to have to you know, have all that infrastructure in place if you want to actually affect the government. And so the, the spending of money and the amassing of resources in order to pay for speech is is part and parcel of the um, of having a government that is responsive to the people in a real sense, and not merely to atomized individuals on street corners.
1: Uh, very interesting. I, I, I enjoy the fact that we talk about money in politics because there's always in our business an inference of guilt anytime somebody offers a campaign contribution. And I... I sit back and remind people that campaigns like mine have cost millions of dollars. Um, everybody comes here with core values and principles. When you run for office, you have your core values and you have your principles, and you lay out during your campaign what you would want to do. And people who believe that you're the right person for governing usually believes that here's what your solution should look like. So it's always funny to to hear the national news media talk about this person gave a, a contribution of $100 of and all of a sudden Congressman A is is writing legislation on that person's behalf. It's like they're looking for a news story. And I'll tell you, an unreported news story that that just goes completely by the 24-hour news cycle is what the Democrats here in Washington have been trying to do to the FEC, trying to change its structure. Um, the left, they complain about the FEC structure all the time because they, they have the, because the FEC has partisan deadlock votes. Well, I think that's great because it shows that you need some bipartisanship to actually regulate free speech, to regulate a member of Congress being, or a candidate being able to run their campaign as they see fit. But the Democrats have tried to make the FEC a, a, an, a partisan commission and, and actually, uh, they would have – what would happen is I, th- I think the FEC would be led by an unelected speech czar, somebody who would be the chair. Like, Do you want to be the unelected speech, bar- speech czar, Mr. Chair?
2: Not remotely. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, and I don't think Brad and Lee would want that either. So what that would entail from what I believe is if we have an uneven commission – if we have somebody powerful, maybe that somebody like has been on the commission 15 years past her, her, her uh, appointment when it should have expired. Um, somebody that I enjoy uh, giving her the opportunity to exercise her free speech rights, to cut down Donald Trump, to cut down Republicans on, on major network outlets. But do we really want her being a speech czar? Absolutely not, and that's exactly what HR1 would do. It's exactly what the far left here in Congress is trying to push for. Now, Lee, how how, how are members of the commission selected? Let our listeners know, and how many members are required for the commission to act?
0: So everyone was very keen that they were creating an agency to regulate themselves, to regulate the political process, to act as the umpires, to call the balls and strikes of the game. And they were very keen that you shouldn't let one team decide or control the umpires and choose all the umpires. So the FEC was very uh, conscientiously and prudentially established as a six-member commission, an even number, which which is uh, unlike. Uh, almost all other agencies, which are odd numbers with the president getting the uh, odd number so that the FCC, for example, is a five member body with the president's party controlling three of the seats and uh, the the party that does not win the White House only gets two seats. But the FEC was created as a six member body and the law says that no more than three can uh, be appointed from any given party. That's to prevent one party from taking control of regulation of the political process. And further, that there must be four affirmative votes needed to take any regulatory action, whether that's uh, issuing a new regulation, issuing an advisory opinion, or most importantly, taking enforcement action against a citizen or group or, or campaign. Now what that, Uh, And what that was intended to do is to instill bipartisanship in the regulatory process of of, of politics and of political competition. Now, it's important to recognize that when the FEC splits its votes three to three, that is um, not a failure of the agency. That is a prudential feature of the agency. And it really is, you know, in any number of votes, you're going to see a distribution of votes. You will see some 6-0 votes. Most of the votes are 6-0. You will see some 5-1 votes. And I was the one in some 5-1 votes, I think. I think uh, Commissioner Smith was as well. Um, And there will be some 4-2 votes, and there will be 3-3 votes. But then there is another credential feature in this system.
1: But the bottom line is the result is the same. It it makes the FEC into a partisan agency uh, controlled by whomever is in the White House, which is, again, as you said, Lee, the antithesis of of why the FEC was created in the first place, because the White House at the time was using federal agencies to do what they may to address enemies list issues. I had no idea Lois Lerner worked for the Nixon administration, too. Interesting. (laughs) Very interesting. Well, there
0: are some aspects of human nature that we need to set up structures around, and, and that's how the FEC was set up. Now, imagine, uh, Congressman, um, imagine the, the agency that regulates politics and political competition yep. with, with a five-member body, with the chairman, the super chairman, appointed by the incumbent president at a time when the president is running for re-election. And through that appointment power, the president has power to steer enforcement in the political arena. And by comparison, there was a a report done about the Obama Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, that showed over 30% of significant votes of that body during the Obama administration were decided by three to two votes. So you have to ask yourself, do you want enforcement actions during a campaign season to be decided by three to two partisan votes with uh, the decisive vote being a chairperson appointed by the president who may himself be a candidate for re-election?
1: You know, great points. And, and clearly now we know why the left wants to regulate free speech, why they want this partisan makeup. Uh, they... I like the fact that our Republican commissioners care about they care about uh, unanimity, they care about bipartisanship and they care about making the right decisions. Chair Dickerson, it, it, you know hopefully you see that there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about FEC operations and enforcement. The FEC is in charge with is charged with issuing advisory opinions on how federal campaign laws apply to specific factual situations. What do you rely on in making your decision? Do you confer with your other commissioners? When you get a case put in front of you,
2: uh, absolutely. I mean, let, well, let me back up because I've got, I've got a short pitch on this one. Since okay. I'm speaking to a member of Congress, um, you know, the, the the advisory opinion process is, I think, one of the most overlooked uh, useful things the commission can do. Um, it's not just our sort of opinion on a matter. You, know, you you bring in a question, and very often these questions do not come from people with fancy lawyers. Very often, it's we just had one last week where it was a retired Marine Corps sergeant who had a question about you know, an issue of law, represented himself, wrote up a one-page email, and sent it into the commission. And we have to answer these by law. And not only do we have to answer them, but if we, if we give you an answer, if we say, yes, you may do this, then you are by law protected from enforcement actions by relying on this. So it's, it's a very powerful tool for getting answers to difficult questions that may arise that is not expensive and which really does have a, does have a sting in, in the tail in terms of that, that immunization from, from enforcement action. But So I, I like to pitch them because I think it's one of the things that we, we do that's useful um, and, and, and you know, possibly uh, a part of, the, part of the Commission's work that I enjoy. Um, but no, I mean, we, we, we start the same way you'd expect with anything. We, we read the statute, we read the regulations, we see if the law is clear on the matter. Um, and sometimes it is, and very often it isn't. And you know, to to your point about you know unanimity and um, you know trying to get to the right answer, no, we we absolutely have discussions. We try to get to yes on these things. We try to um, we try to issue guidance to to the world about what the answer is under the law. Um, we don't always succeed. Sometimes there are good faith disagreements about what the answer is, uh, but it's very much a collaborative process.
1: So, you mentioned these advisory opinions would inoculate a candidate running for Congress from any enforcement action. Can you see how that process could be hijacked with a partisan FEC commission?
2: Yes, and I, I think that's of a point. You know, my, my personal view is that it would be very difficult to do the commission's work if there were a perception of partisan bias.
1: So now that you don't have the 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 partisanship the partisan breakdown cuz cuz you know god knows we need more partisanship in this country right that's what the american taxpayer's screaming for be more polarized be more partisan of course no what they're saying is let's just make some decisions that are collaborative what happens under the current structure if the commission's deadlocked on a matter is is it always a problem
2: no i mean so to so take take the advisory opinion example um you know, it may be that we can't send out an opinion that immunizes anyone. But I do think that, you know, you, you go down one of two routes. Um, you know, one, it's, I think, very useful just to see where the commissioners are on something, to see the drafts, to see the votes, to have a sense of where, you know, the law stands. And the other point is the one that, um, that Mr. Goodman raised, which is, you know, this stuff's subject to judicial review. And very often when we're deadlocking, we're deadlocking because the answer is not clear. Um, you know, this area of the law, I was in the courtroom when Justice Scalia, you know, mentioned that campaign finance law was so intricate that he couldn't understand it. You know, and if, if Justice Scalia felt that way, I can only imagine how a, a, a new candidate for Congress must feel encountering this. Uh, and so those opportunities, I think, to, to serve up judicial review and get real answers to difficult questions is, is an important part of the process. Well, I don't, I, I don't think it's been helpful. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it does, I think there have been a few problems. One. And, and in some ways, this is, you know, my background is, is as a litigator. I used to but, go to court and talk to federal but then
1: judges. How, did, how, how, do, how do these commissioners believe that's going to be a better idea? Is it just a delay tactic so that you can delay the enforcement actions? I
2: don't know. I, th- I think that what has happened is that there's been a perception in certain commissioners' minds um, that this is the only way forward. And I, I, I sincerely don't think, one, it'll work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know again, my background as a litigator, not showing up to court when a federal judge tells you to or not complying with federal court orders does not strike me as a smart long-term plan. <laughs> um, but even if I'm wrong, you know it, again, it, it blocks the orderly development of the law. It blocks this process by which we serve up the difficult questions and have them decided by a judge who has the advantages. Of seeing the reasoning of the expert agency in front of, of him or her, um, so I, I think that it's 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 been very damaging to the ability of the commissioners to engage collaboratively.
1: Well, interesting to hear that. I, I I'm glad to hear that. You know, some of these processes that I think are pretty outlandish. We have some common sense commissioners there. Hey, look, I uh, I, I want to go to Lee real quick. Uh, short answer. We're running out of time because I want to get to uh, a list of questions I have for Brad, but. Uh, Recently, the Supreme Court heard an oral argument in a case brought by Senator Cruz challenging a federal law that places a cap on the amount of post-election contributions that may be used to pay back a loan made by the candidate to his or her campaign. Uh, As you know, Lee, this FEC does not litigate every matter that comes before the commission. We just talked about that with the chair. Uh, During your tenure, how did the FEC determine which cases to litigate?
0: Well, when a a law is challenged, when it's constitutionally uh, challenged, uh, the Office of General Counsel reads the statute to require the agency to defend the constitutionality of the statute. Now, that's different than when the agency splits its vote and does not proceed in an enforcement matter, and then the agency needs an affirmative vote of four commissioners to defend the agency. That's the issue you were just discussing with Alan. Now, where uh, the agency steps in to defend a statute under constitutional challenge, which is the subject of the Cruz EFEC case, when the case ends up at uh, the uh, appellate stage, and it does require four votes of the agency to defend if it loses in the trial court, which is what happened in this case, then the uh, U.S. Uh, Solicitor General's Office has statutory authority to take over, the defense of the statute in the Supreme Court, and it was the Deputy Solicitor General who argued uh, in defense of the constitutionality of the loan repayment statute and cruised the FEC. So depending on the nature of the lawsuit, it's a constitutional challenge. Uh, The FEC determines that it has a statutory duty to defend. If it is enforcement action being challenged in court, you need four affirmative votes to defend, and that's what's led to this Uh, morass where the agency where certain commissioners are trying to default the agency in order to hand over enforcement to private parties.
1: Great. Great. Thank you. I know our audience uh, loves to hear that. Um, Brad, we want to talk about the regulated community. Uh, For our audience, can you state who is regulated by the FEC and who is not? Sure.
3: I, I always used to get a kick out of that phrase, the regulated community, because as I would describe to more general audience, I would say. By that they mean us, the people. <laughs> that is to say, everybody is regulated by the FEC. If you decide to talk about politics to the public at large and spend any money doing so, um, in a sense, you know, if a if a person, for example, some years ago, a group tried to start a thing called Sesame TV, which would allow people to to uh, run ads on cable TV, just design their own ads, which you could easily do on you know web technology now. And buy these little ad spots on TV and cable TV. You can buy like ads on Animal Planet at you know like 2 a.m. for like 50 bucks kind of thing. Um, and the idea was that people could run their own little political ads and have fun doing it. It ran into uh intractable regulatory problems, it just couldn't get through the FEC, you know, regulations on disclaimers and all that kind of thing. But that's what I mean. Somebody just spending a few bucks like that or some small group decides to spend a few hundred dollars uh, to write, make some comments about a local issue, uh, they're regulated. So so we, we think specifically about it as campaigns, political party committees, and PACs, but it's also anybody else who wants to speak from large interest groups like uh, Planned Parenthood or the NAACP or the Rifle Association or Right to Life to, you know, anybody who, who's out there seeking Seeking to act. So, if, if you want to talk about politics, you have to be aware of the FEC.
1: Well, that, that's a great response, and and I think it puts into perspective why we're here today. Uh, because it's not just regulating members of Congress and our campaigns and how we spend the money that that's raised on our behalf to get elected. Um, it's about the community that talks about politics. And now, one of the newer terms. I mean, it's not new to all of us, but it's newer to uh, it's newer to the political scene. Um, it's it's what it's, it's a super PAC. Explain to us what a super PAC is and what's not a super PAC like C4 groups and, and explain the difference between whether or not a super PAC should be considered a dark money organization or what is a dark money organization.
3: Okay. Well, so let's start with what a PAC is. I mean, I think most of the listeners of this podcast probably know, but I mean, basically a PAC is just a place where people pool their money and they use it to make contributions to candidates or they can use it to make independent expenditures about candidates, just to talk on about candidates. That latter is not done too often by PACs, but they can. A super PAC is simply a PAC that doesn't give money directly to candidate campaigns, but instead only makes independent expenditures, expenditures they make separately from the campaign, sort of their own view. Here's who we think should win this race and here's why. Uh, And because they don't give money directly to candidates, the Supreme Court has held that they're beyond the anti-corruption rationale that that legitimizes some of these regulations as a constitutional matter. And thus, uh, a super PAC essentially can spend as much as it wants on independent expenditures, and it can take in... Uh, money from any source, including corporations and labor unions. And corporate, corporations usually means non-profit corporations. There's very few for-profit corporations that, that directly make a lot of these expenditures. But there, but there are some. Uh, so uh, a super PAC can take in contributions from corporations, from individuals. It's not limited in the size of those. And the big difference is it has to spend it on independent expenditures. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is you often hear people talk about super PACs and undisclosed money and so on. Super PACs disclose all their donors, just like any other PAC does, all their donors above a very de minimis level. And they disclose their expenditures above a de minimis level, just like any other PAC does. So what then is this question of, quote, dark money? Well, dark money is just a pejorative word used for, I think, largely speech that some people don't like. But but we could probably define it as something like this.
0: A group such as,
3: uh, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood, Action Fund, or uh, the Chamber of Commerce or something, the National Association of Realtors, they can spend money on political races to expressly advocate, the election, or defeat of candidates, but there, it has to be something – it can't be their primary or their major purpose. So traditionally, it's viewed as it has to be less than half of what they do. And because most people are giving to these groups not to support political ads – but to, you know, they give to the Chamber of Commerce or the National Association of Realtors because it's their their professional group, and it, and it lobbies generally for their interests and argues for it and so on and provides them with member benefit services. So because of that feature, they don't have to disclose all of the individual donors to the organization. Now, they have to disclose what they spend on politics. That's disclosed. If the National Association of Realtors runs an ad, they've got to disclose it. They have to file reports with the FBC and everything else but they don't have to disclose the name of everybody who gives money to the National Association of Realtors. And some people then now call that dark money. It's important to note that, you know, we do know about how much is spent. Sometimes people say, well, we don't know how much is spent because it's dark. No, we do know because we know how much the realtors or whoever else it is spends on ads. They have to report that. We just don't know the name of every one of their donors. Now, do voters really need that information? You know, I don't think many donors see an ad was funded by you know the afl cio or the chamber of commerce and they sit around and go gee what does the afl cio stand for I, you know I, I just don't understand that group you know i, I think most people get a, have a pretty good idea of who's who's paying for the, the yeah. issue and, and what their point of view is where you know where they're coming from
1: uh, i mean i don't know about you but i find it ironic that there are some groups whose sole purpose is to end dark money in politics and then they take dark money
3: <laughs> right that's right okay that's uh, it.
1: I, I didn't know if i was off base there if there's something you guys see too um, yeah
3: it, it, you're right
1: yeah hey one uh, uh quick question um we're, we're coming down to i'm going to do one more lightning round but i did want to get to a couple things with you real quick brad uh, <coughs> presidential campaign fund still exists 340 million probably sitting in there who was the last major candidate to use the presidential election campaign fund?
3: The last candidate to use it in a general election was John McCain in 2008. Um, In 2016, two candidates used the fund, Martin O'Malley, remember the former uh, Maryland Mm. governor who ran for the Democratic nomination, I think got like zero delegates or maybe one or something. And Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate. So really, you know, it's not been used by, by truly major candidates since the McCain general election campaign in 2008 and it's not been used by most candidates at all since 2004 when both george bush and john kerry used it in the primaries although neither used it in the general election so you're right it's about 380 million dollars just sitting out there uh not really doing anything
1: well we've we've got a bill to take that money and and put it to good use to fund childhood cancer research we'll see if the democrats agree that that's a better ex, a better uh, better expense rather than funding fringe candidates um, you know, but I, I'm not too convinced that that's going to be the case because the Democrats here in Congress again have proposed a public financing program of our own campaigns, their own campaigns. They put in you know an HR1 and mostly and in just uh, recently the the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, they took this public financing a step further by creating a six to one match program which my team and I my team figured, that I would have been eligible to receive up to 7.2 million dollars in public matching funds. Yeah, in the same bill, they try to reduce the number of FEC commissioners to make it a partisan, uh, to make it a partisan organization. And then they want to, they want to hyperinflate their own campaign accounts by up to 7.2 million dollars. No one, and I mean no one, in my entire constituency, my entire career as a member of Congress, has ever come to me and said, "You need to put public money into your own campaign." at a six to one match level. So thank you all for being here today. I got one last closing question. I'm gonna ask you all to answer in one or two at most sentences, because I think it's important to get your opinion here. Um, I'll start with you, Chair Dickerson. In your opinion, what do you see as the biggest threat to political speech today?
2: I think you alluded to it earlier. There's a deep danger in polarization. There's a danger that we will say we can we can regulate the other guy's speech because he's wrong and the shoe will never be on the other foot.
1: That was almost three sentences, but I think I put a comma there before the and, so I'm going to hold you to the two sentences. All use right? a lot of semicolons. And I didn't want to give these other two guys three sentences. I want to stick to what, I, what, what my <laughs> initial rule was. Now, uh, Brad, what's your answer to that question? What's the biggest threat to political speech today?
3: I think it's this belief that there's some kind of objective misinformation that the government needs to regulate and, and can regulate that totally misunderstands the entire purpose of the First Amendment, which was that we can't give that kind of
0: power to government.
1: Great, great. Lee, what's your perspective?
0: I think the greatest uh, threat to uh, the First Amendment today is the diminution in the cultural value that two generations of will- college students have been exposed to on college campuses. It started with the political correctness movement in the 1980s and 1990s, and now it's manifested as cancel culture. And there has been a general diminution in the value we as a society place on free thought and free speech.
1: Excellent responses from all of you. And I'm sure when this podcast goes out, you will all three join me in being labeled as a vote suppressionist. So congratulations for joining the dark side here. Even though we have had record turnout in our elections, the highest turnout in over 120 years, somehow the Democrats believe that Republicans and people like the three of you that advocate for free speech are suppressing votes. It's not true. We know that. The regulatory structure of the FEC works in a a nonpartisan way. Each Each of you have relayed your experience I am so honored today to have been joined by Chair, current Chair of the FEC, Alan Dickerson, and we've got former Commissioners and, and Chairs in Lee Goodman and Brad Smith. Thank you three for being here today. May God continue to bless you and your families, and I certainly hope we continue this fight against free speech that the Democrats have put forth. Thanks for joining us again on the Committee on House Administration's uh, Faith in Elections Integrity podcast. We look forward to li- having you listen, and we look forward to having you here our other guests that are coming up too. Thank you.